0: You're sitting in the office, making some small, insignificant networking changes when you receive a call from the NOC. The whole network is down. Everything in the monitoring systems just went red. Your heart sinks, and as you're troubleshooting the problem, you start rehearsing your future conversation with the ITIL manager. Then you suddenly realize, oh, I think I accidentally black-holed the route to the monitoring probe. (laughs) Ha, no big deal, guys. One small rollback, and everything is green again. Situations like this may not happen often, but they do happen. I know, because it happened to me. Today is Monday, May 9th, 2016, and you're listening to Episode 5, Troubleshooting, on Infotrek. Hey everybody, welcome back to Infotrek. This is John, and I'm back with Derek and Mike. And uh, we have some news to go over this week. First thing here is, uh, looks like, there's a race for the container space. Microsoft, Cisco, and HP are all backing Mesosphere over Docker and uh, and other container uh, orchestration solutions. While VMware and Pivotal have announced a partnership uh, to finally give you some kind of VMware-native uh, container application system. Uh, Mike, what do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think this is uh, this is a good thing, right? I mean, it, containers are sort of the next level of virtualization or the next rendition of virtualization, I guess. And uh, seeing everybody sort of clamoring to it, um, you know, full force is good. I think it's interesting that Microsoft's in the mix, uh, backing something that's open sourced again, you know, they open source.net. And there's a continuing progressive movement toward open source software at Microsoft, which I think is a really positive thing. And, you know, will ultimately help make it more adopted. Uh, but You know, the the thing is that I think Docker is really first to the space and other things that are kind of following afterwards, I think are going to have a hard time competing. It's kind of that first to market thing. And there's such a community around Docker. It's going to be tough for anything else to really get in there and make a big impact anytime soon.
0: Yeah. I I can't wait for uh, Microsoft. I I think, I believe that the The containerization that they're going to be coming out with is for like Linux-based containers. But I'm going to be really excited if they start uh, being able to put Microsoft services in containers because that's always been a pain in the ass in in uh, in the history of Microsoft to try and stand up you know multiple OSs for individual services because you don't want to pair them up on you know different or all on the same operating system. Derek, anything to say on this?
2: Yeah, I think if you read the article, it actually talks about that, where they're leveraging this right now for the Azure cloud to do exactly that. Um, so it's a pretty cool, like you said, shift in thinking, right, to kind of actually really containerize on the Microsoft side. Um, so we'll kind of see how it plays out. Actually, a, a buddy of mine, he just went to go work for them as a new SE on the pre-sale side. So uh, he's hoping to have a good track record uh, there. He came from... Meraki before they were Cisco. So, um, yeah, hopefully he makes another smart move on that front. Cool.
0: Next up here, Microsoft. Looks like they are uh, entertaining the ability of doing data storage in uh, in DNA uh, molecules. Uh, they partnered with another company that has done a proof of concept where they can actually store store binary data in in molecular strands of dna and derek what do you think
2: yeah this is a uh, it's actually really cool to me because you know my, my wife actually works in biotech so she actually deals a lot of this with a lot of this stuff on a day-to-day basis so usually when i come home and talk shop you know we can't really talk to each other and whatnot because it's way over our heads uh, mutually so uh, for something like this though it's really interesting the science behind it and you know where they're going and you know what they can possibly do with it and like you know, understand extremely long term archival support of, you know, DNA strands, right? Because if you think about it, they can last for you know literally millions and millions of years. So yeah. I don't think we're gonna be replacing, you know, USB drives with anything in the future, but you know, I can see some uh some minority report stuff coming up here. You know, you store all your data like in your blood cells and you swipe your finger and <laughs> you're in. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like tape storage uh, it's a target for replacement by this because
0: it's, it's not really, you know, readily accessible. You kind of write it to a molecule and store it away and you can read, I think it's destructive to read it back and that kind of thing. But, um, it's very high density, much more than tape and it's not nearly as volatile. Um, but I, I believe it does still need a, a very controlled environment, you know, cold environment, that kind of thing. Mike, what do you think you want to, you want to start storing some data on some DNA?
1: Well, I got to say I'm I'm sort of confused by the practical application of this because I mean, am I going to have a big bin of hair laying around in my data center that I'm storing <laughs> all all of my backups on or what what sort of physical footprint is this going to have after they actually implement it?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was um I'm going to have to go back and look, but it was like I, I remember them mentioning that they could store hundreds of terabytes in like a single gram of actual matter of uh, DNA matter. So it's, it's like super high density, but it's obviously probably very slow to write and that kind of thing. And it's not, you know, readily um, able to, you know, read the information out. It looks like, but but it'd be kind of interesting, you know, in the future. Yeah, that sounds sure. very uh, sounds, sounds very sci-fi. It, it is suppose. very
1: sci-fi. Like, I just, I can't, I'm trying to think of, like, how the mechanics of it would work, right? Like, what's the addressing system to get the data back yeah. off of it and, and <laughs> index it and all of those things. It just seems kind of surreal that we actually can do this sort of stuff, but very cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, last one here. Um, looks like... GM and Lyft are uh, partnering up, going up against Uber and pretty much all taxi drivers, and have announced that they are going to have self-driving autonomous taxis by the end of 2016 this year. Um, I'm I'm excited about it. I would I would totally go for an autonomous taxi picking me up with no driver or something like that. You know, especially going around town in some big metropolitan city or something like that. But um, I don't know. It might, if this takes off, it could put a lot of people out of work. Um, Mike, what do you think? Would you uh, would you get into a taxi with no driver in it?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest things that I like about Uber and Lyft is that there's actually like some personal feel to it, right? It's this whole concept of the peer to peer economy and people actually taking pride in you know the vehicle that they're driving you around in and the experience that you have. And if you take that component of it away, it's just really the same as a taxi, right? I'm going to get in this autonomous vehicle that somebody threw up in. You know when it picked them up from the bar right before i got in it and there's nobody there to really oversee whether that experience is awesome i mean i'm sure the the ride is going to be smooth and everything about the actual you know physical movement will be great but the inside of the vehicle might be total crap after uh somebody gets out of it right so i think that is kind of a detractor for me i sort of like the the personal touch of uber and lyft right now
0: yeah that that's that's a good point i hadn't thought of that uh you know you can, I guess you can kind of, if there's nobody in there to stop you, you can do whatever you want on the inside of that car. And, you know, I mean, maybe they, they might find you afterwards. I'm sure they'll have some kind of camera system or something like that to try and track you down. But you know, that's a, uh, that's a good point. And, and I'm, I'm not a big, uh, I, I don't live, you know, down in the city and I don't really use Lyft or Uber very much, but, but I get what you mean by the personal feel that, uh, that seems like that could, that could keep people, um, Keep them subscribed to Lyft and Uber and the, you know, sort of like what you said, the peer-to-peer taxi system. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's not really like I use it on a regular basis either. It's mostly when I travel, but, um, you know, if you get in a – if you travel to Vegas one time and you get in a cab and fear for your life the entire time you're in the cab – Um, and probably can't communicate with the driver and then you get in an uber that's like a really great ride and you have a good conversation with the driver and he gives you a free bottle of water and you know some gum or whatever's going on in the car to sort of give it that like one-up experience i think i think that's
0: kind of a big deal derek what do you think are you a big uh are you a big uber or lyft user
2: uh, the answer is sort of right so being like a car guy and a control freak the idea of like not driving the car like it just drives me crazy because you know that's just how i am but i will say i'm a huge fan of uber and lyft and i use it not all the time but significantly right if i'm airport you know you know like mike said if i'm traveling to like the bay area or norcal yeah no brainer easy um, and there's been times where I've been in situations where I've been in the middle of freaking nowhere. I was like, wow, I wish I had an Uber and not relying on a crazy taxi cab. And I've had my fair share of terrible experiences. And I have to say, I've actually taken an Uber from San Diego to orange County and back. And it was like the best experience I've ever had. It was, uh, the guy was super cool. Um, I got tons of work done, you know, while being chauffeur around, The guy waited for me while my meeting was done. We drove back together and it was a fantastic experience. But, you know, do I want fully automated cars? Someone like me? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. It,
0: I, I guess taxis would be the best place to start for something like autonomous cars, right? Where you're actually making, you know, it, it, cause, because they're probably going to cost significantly more than a regular car and and if you can make a good amount of money and not have to pay a driver and insurance and that kind of thing, well, I guess insurance might be even more than, uh, than typical, but I don't know. I, uh, I don't know if I would be interested as much of renting or, or, you know, getting into a taxi that's autonomous as I would owning a car that's autonomous. Cause I just hate driving. I would, I would much rather, you know, get, uh, get work done while I'm on the road and that kind of thing. But anyway, so, uh, Today guys, our topic is troubleshooting derek this was uh this was a topic that you had suggested and uh, and I thought it was a really good idea by no means i don't I don't think we can exhaustively cover the topic of troubleshooting in a half an hour show but um, I think that uh, we can put out some good insights and things like that so so Derek I'll start with you um, describe to me what what is troubleshooting
2: so to me troubleshooting is being able to take. A problem you're experiencing either, you know, past or kind of present, um, break it down into smaller chunks that you can essentially divide and conquer or systematically approach, um, to essentially solve the problem. I would say that's a pretty high level definition of it, right? And that can apply to, you know, anything mechanical, electrical, you know just about anything you do you can kind of have a troubleshooting component to it you know whether it's like your home plumbing system or a complex network that runs the internet it's all you know kind of takes the same approach into how you would divide and conquer in my opinion
0: okay mike what, what about you what do you think what is troubleshooting in uh, from your experience
1: at a philosophical level I think Derek hit it pretty well right you break down a problem or or some behavior that's unfavorable into smaller pieces so you can kind of disqualify each one of them as being the
0: problem and uh and and, you know ultimately hopefully resolve it along the way so Derek what are the different types of troubleshooting that you would do in different situations right I, I can think of a couple like you know today I was I was um troubleshooting a small network sort of at leisure I knew what the problem was but it it wasn't a fully in production network and I could kind of troubleshoot it as I as I wanted to but I know it's very different obviously than when you have some kind of you know sev one outage and everybody's on the phone and the the CTO is breathing down your neck to get the thing fixed and and you're sitting there trying to troubleshoot what uh do you do you use different methodologies in two different situations or or what do you think
2: so I think uh, the methodologies are mostly the same. The only difference would be how fast you execute and what you can kind of, you know, comprehend all at once. Meaning, like, you know, you have to be able to kind of drink from a fire hose. I mean, I've been in so many situations, you know, more than I care to admit, where we've been in, you know, seven, one downs. Like, you know, everybody's on the line. Customers are losing money left and right. And it has to get up. Um, typically, in situations like that, you might shortcut a few things. Um, you know, to circumvent some situations, but, you know, I've been in times where when you do that, it ultimately comes back to some type of basic, you know, layer one, layer two type problem anyway, that if you would have kind of followed your methodology, you would have found it much sooner, but it's definitely a, a high pressure situation, right? Where you have people calling you for updates, you can't work. It's, it's really kind of a firefight. And, and sometimes those situations you get into, uh, you know, trouble because you'll, essentially fix a problem but it's really more of a band-aid right and that kind of requires a more due diligence deep dive troubleshooting um to really solve the problem and not just slap a band-aid on and and fix it yeah
1: so i think this is you know kind of one of those situations where experience comes into play right and uh as derek said like if you if you follow your experience you'll, you'll probably find that you need to to be thorough and kind of check your starting points. But I think also when you're troubleshooting in sort of a high pressure situation, uh, you know, things that you may be, you may be able to disqualify things based on your experience, right? And it's probably always good, no matter how high pressure the situation is, to just collect your thoughts before you start doing things, because otherwise you don't really have a sequential, you know, disqualification method for things that may be the problem along the way. Uh, You may be able to sort of map that out and then skip a few of them based on, you know, the symptoms you're seeing or just, you know, having gone through the exercise before in the past, but it's still, as, as Derek said, I think fundamentally the same, right? You, you sort of understand what the problem is, verify the problem and then kind of figure out what potentially could be the cause and then work through those things one through one by one
2: um, until you find really what the, you know, what the root cause of the issue is. The first question you always want to ask is what was the last thing that changed? Because, you know, I, swear more times than I care to admit, you know, it's always like, oh, nothing changed, nothing changed, you know, you're troubleshooting and then you realize, oh yeah, we made this change like last night. And it's like, well, oh yeah, I just, that'd I have did been great ground, to have but, four but, hours ago. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, you mean things don't spontaneously combust in data centers all the time? Like people want you to believe?
2: There's no coincidences in networking, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so
0: the methodology that I've always used, um, I think Mike, you were kind of describing, Um, high level one of yours, but I've always seen troubleshooting and always approached it a lot like the scientific method that you learn in grade school, right? Where you look at a problem, um, you observe what the problem actually is, what's being affected by it, come up with a hypothesis of what, you know, what the root cause could actually be, write up a test of, you know, okay, if, if my hypothesis is correct, I should be able to do this and either maybe break it more or, um, or fix it completely, or even, you know, just change something that, uh, that you're seeing run that test. And then, you know, either come to a conclusion of what the fix is or, you know, observe it again and revamp your test. I've always kind of approached it that way. And Mike, you were, you were, uh, you were talking about your methodologies a minute ago, Derek, what about you? What, what, what typically, what kind of steps go through your head of, um, you know, what to do when you're troubleshooting a problem?
2: Yeah, I think what you mentioned, John, is like spot on, right? Is eliminate as many variables as possible as much, you know, as quickly as you can in a network. Um, you know, I know it's not always easy to to do like, you know, Hey, we're going to change an iOS code or a firmware code or things like that. And and usually for the most part, those types of things are, you know, not always the the primary culprits, right? But hitting like the low hanging fruit, um, you know, eliminate as many variables as possible, run quick tests if you can. You know, use 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 the tools you have at your disposal, right? Like things like in Map, you know, trace route, which you know it's helpful, but understanding really how it works and, and what it can do, and you know, other tools you might have on your network, right? So this always kind of comes back to hopefully, and, and this is why you should monitor your networks, right? So you can have a baseline of what's happening and, and what's happening during the problem, so you can actually kind of work backwards in time and and you know look at the packets and and things like that to say hey there's a spike in this and this is because of that and kind of understand the whole chain reaction so you know it's it's a lot of experience for sure and i think the biggest teacher of that is self-inflicted um troubleshooting right you know there's a lot of times where i've seen people do something one way and then all of a sudden it causes a ripple effect and then you know kaboom you have this like crazy layered approach of something you cause from one simple problem and a good example of that is uh anybody who's ever been to this UCI lab, right? If you kind of just jump around and don't read the whole instruction set from the beginning, you're very quickly shooting yourself in the foot, troubleshooting a problem you created that was, you know, intentional from the lab guides, but it still, still applies in the real world. Actually,
1: I was just going to say, it's really good that you brought up the point about monitoring your network, right? I mean, I think that's one of the things that is probably your most useful tool in a troubleshooting scenario is just having a baseline, right? And if you're monitoring your network, you have a continual baseline, you know, most recently as your last, you know, collect or dump from whatever you're monitoring. So you kind of know when things stopped working um, or when the baseline, you know, sort of became uh, uh, non-existent uh, and, you know, finding a control, just like John said, in any sort of scientific experiment. Uh, is always where you want to start so that you have something to compare it to and you're not just endlessly chasing something that you're not sure if it ever worked or didn't work or behave the way that you expect it to behave. Um, so you know, monitoring is is one of your most valuable tools, and that's why you know it's why people pay to have mon- networks monitored. That's why you know there's so many tools out there that uh, that can really help you with that and give you that ongoing picture of you know what works and what doesn't.
2: Yeah, to also add to that, you know, that, that's a good point. Is one thing that we see kind of on the partner side coming in as you know consultants is you know really doing uh, testing you know, monthly or quarterly or just scheduled testing, right? Because I, I can't tell you how many times we go into a customer, you know, we do an upgrade um, and then we always do basically a test before we touch anything and a test after we touch something. Because there's been so many times where we've gone in um, make a change and then it breaks some other crazy bandaid the customer has. And then, you know, they're saying, Oh, well you guys broke it. And it's like, well, actually it's been broken for probably six plus months according to this test, you know? So it's more of a CYA if you're a consultant or a VAR. Um, but it's again, kind of falls back with the troubleshooting and the monitoring and just knowing what your network is doing from a day-to-day operations is, is huge.
0: Yeah. My, uh, my favorite part about the monitoring is, uh, is when you like black hole traffic to the monitoring probe. I remember I did that at a customer once and you know, they have their, their entire knock was like pulling their hair out and I accidentally had just like added a, a host route to the monitoring probe and black holed it somewhere or something like that. And the networks completely fine, but according to the monitoring system, nothing is working whatsoever. And but yeah, that's 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 a good point there. getting a baseline. I'll always ask. You know, when somebody comes back and says, this is this and that is broken, I'll ask them, when was the last time it worked? And all too often, I'll hear, well, you know, I, I think it worked like three weeks ago or something like that, where, you know, you're, you're getting into some kind of troubleshooting and, and troubleshooting some kind of issue that has been around for a long time and is not really a high priority at that moment. But people are trying to throw it in there to get that fixed at the same time. Um, I found a lot of people to be opportunistic like that when you're When you're down in the weeds troubleshooting a network, (laughs) yeah, that's a good
2: point too. Is you know the other thing too is you get into is um, is understanding what they mean by oh it's not working. It's like okay, is it like really not working or is it like working slow? Exactly, that's like the best example (laughs) of websites down. It's like well, does your network? Yeah, okay, you know, so there's there's definitely a lot of steps that go into that, right? And it's just really how knowing to actually how to talk to users and. I'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of like growing up through it, right? So like, you know, me, you know, a long long time ago, I was kind of like working for a knock and I had to like actually call people that knew literally nothing about computers and it taught me not only to be patient but like how to troubleshoot in a different way to where you had to get so specific that you had to indicate like when I say click on a mouse, it's like for me I just assume everyone knows, oh you click with the same button. It's like, well no, some people assume left click versus right click and, and things like that. So like learning that patience to me is another huge part of troubleshooting. Um, when you're kind of doing like long-term stuff, I mean, obviously if it's, you know, four o'clock in the morning and you've been up for, you know, six or seven hours troubleshooting a problem, your patience runs thin, but um, it definitely comes in quite handy during the the madness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and never discount the physical layer, right? So many times I, I remember just a couple of weeks ago we had some, you know, some random firewall outage, you know, and it was, it happened maybe eight hours after we'd left the data center. And, you know, the guy walks back in and, oh, the power cable fell out. You know, it just happened to fall out like eight hours after we left and everything was working when we left. But, you know, stuff like that, nine times out of 10, well, maybe not that often, but quite often, more often than you would expect. Uh, it's a physical layer problem, right? So a lot of time, in my experience. When I had to do troubleshooting, especially during an outage, a lot of times you have to, once you find out, not necessarily exactly what the root cause is, but you find out how to fix it, and uh, you're on that SEV-1 call, and you fix it, and then you, you, know, you pop the question, okay guys, well, we know how to fix it, but we don't know what caused it, and you have to, at that time, pick between the fix and the forensics. And, you know, and it, it kind of comes back down to the root cause analysis. You can either fix it right now and get the network back up or, hey, you know, maybe give me 15 or 20 more minutes and I can probably figure out exactly what caused it rather than just like put something in and fix it. Derek, what do you think? What How's, how's a good way to sort of approach that?
2: Yeah, that, that's that's tough. I mean, I've, I've been in a situation too where you're spot on, right? Where you're, you're a few hours in, you've almost got it and you're like, okay, I can fix this or if I had... 15 more minutes, I can actually tell you what the problem is. And I would say it comes down to really the customer and the business they're in. I mean, if it's one of those things where they can sustain the ad for another half hour, then usually they'll do it. But in like any kind of money situation, they're, it's all about getting it back up. And then then typically what happens is you say, okay, you kind of recap all the notes, all the teams, review everything, kind of build a committee around it. And then it involves extensive after hours, weekend, scheduled testing to kind of essentially break it again and kind of keep working through the problems. And, you know, usually when that happens, there's pretty good success into finding other issues that were either unknown or you didn't know about. So it's definitely, you know, a recommended approach to circle back the wagons, if you will, and really make sure the root cause is solved for. Um, but then there's also times where you, you'll be in situations where the root cause is like, You know, packets are just kind of just getting lost, like in your WAN cloud, and like there's nothing you can do about it. I remember there was a time where like I used to work for a customer or a company, and you know everything was on T1s, and like every time it rained, I'd freak out because like my phone would blow up, T1s would be going down, and like they would always want these root cause, and I would, after a while, I would just say like weather conditions, right? Because that's essentially what it was: is weather plus bad cabling plus water equals lost packets, and then eventually they kind of backed off, but. Um, yeah, circling back, I think is is very key to documenting what the problems were, and then so you prevent it from happening again.
0: Mike, what about you? How, how do you typically approach the fix versus the forensics, you know, question when you've finally kind of gotten to the end of the troubleshooting session?
1: Well, I mean, I, I guess a couple of things, right? It, it's like I, I I hesitate to like restart services and do things that are going to quote unquote fix the problem until I know what the actual problem is. So I'm probably not going to pull the trigger on fixing it. I'm probably going to make sure that it's what that I know what's broken before I implement said fix, because otherwise I have no way to know whether I did my job or not. And I'm going to lose credibility if I say, okay, it's fixed. And then it goes back down 10 minutes later, right? And there's some other thing there that I probably could have caught if I was more diligent about it. So I always try and you know whether I announce it or not go for the uh, you know the smoking gun and, uh, and yeah. figure out what it is before
0: I get it back online and, and not allowed to touch it anymore yeah it's a hard sell sometimes though when uh, when the business is on the phone and and you know a lot of times if I even if I find the root cause and I and I and I think I know what it is I won't I, you know at the moment I might not say hey I know what this is I can fix it right now like real quick you know if if you're an hour into your troubleshooting session, what's like what's another ten minutes to actually make sure that you really nip the problem in the bud, and uh, you know, and you don't just like you said restart a service or or just do something generic to uh, to possibly fix the problem
2: without actually figuring out what caused it, right? Then you have the guys that just like ninja fix in there without telling anybody, and it's like, oh, back up, <laughs> what happened? I don't know. Imagine, yeah, yeah it magically yep. started working? No, I don't think so. Yeah, you hear the punch down tool going in the
1: background and then it's like, oh, I didn't touch anything.
2: That's my (laughs) my favorite
1: with the service provider. But, um, you know, I think the other thing too is if you, if you have to get things back up and you're under pressure and you can't really you know, do the testing you want to to verify what the root cause is, uh, at least know what you changed so that you can potentially re-implement the condition when it's less impactful, right? I mean, if you can roll back what you did and then come back at, a, you know, an off hours or a maintenance window period and reproduce the problem so that you can collect the data to support, you know, forensically what you're claiming was the issue, Um, you know, that, that's always a a good secondary approach if, if you can't do it in real time because it's a production environment.
0: Yeah. Something I found comes in really handy when trying to go back and do a root cause analysis after you made a fit, you know, you put a fix in place, you think, you know, what the problem was, but now you have to go back and be a hundred percent sure. Um, I found that logging everything that you do, uh, or at least as much as possible is hugely helpful. So if you have a terminal emulator, Use a terminal emulator that will log all of your output to everything you connect to and timestamp it. Timestamp every line so that you can correlate between, you know, multiple logs that were to multiple devices and see what you changed if you can't really remember a week later. Um, have you guys ever, you guys ever had to dig into that much detail like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. For
2: sure. yeah. And I would say one thing reminder is don't overwrite your logs, append to your logs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: absolutely. I mean, in situations, uh, you know, just knowing that I have like more of a voice background and I don't always have that logging capability because it's not a terminal emulator in a lot of cases. It's a GUI application yeah. or, or something that, uh, you know, doesn't support logging the way we'd like it to. Uh, you know, it's always good if you have somebody else with you, even if they're not a technical person uh, I find, you know, when I'm in those higher pressure situations, I just call out what I'm doing to them. And if for no other reason at three o'clock in the morning, they can keep me honest when I start to call out the same thing again and they go, we've already checked that and this is what happened. And, you know, we, we kind of have a, a good working relationship as far as them keeping me sane and them writing down what's going on while I'm actually doing it. So it's a good way yeah. for junior engineers to learn in a lot of cases, too, is like they, they see the process you're going through without just looking at you staring at a screen and not really knowing what's happening.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. And that's that's another um you know, when you when you do a test or or you uh you know, you put in some potential fix that you think might fix the problem, write it down and write down your result. Uh is something I have found helpful because when I don't do that I find I really tend to loop back around and try the same solutions over and over again, forgetting what I did. Um I mean that might just be me, but uh, but I find it hugely helpful to just kind of just open up a, you know, a notepad file and and start writing down, okay, you know, I, I changed this. And this is sort of, you know, just a note on what I saw. And even, you know, then you can kind of keep that and go back. And, and even when you're doing like a root cause analysis, if you didn't figure out exactly the problem at the time, you know, you can go back and look over those notes and see the order and what you did things. And if you did things multiple times and that kind of stuff.
2: And one of the things that, you know, for me, it's kind of like that I like about troubleshooting is when you troubleshoot with another teammate, it really kind of, you know, uh, let's see how, how do I remember this? Um, one of the things I like about troubleshooting is it really kind of tells you what other engineers are made of, right? It gives you like this kind of sense of accomplishment, you know, it's in, in a weird sort of way, right? It's like, yeah, you can build a network and it works. That's cool. Kind of high five. But when you like get brought in to solve a complex problem and you're doing it within a couple hours of work and like the ultra high pressure situation. I know for me, every time I was done with something like that, I was always kind of like, yeah, like you felt really good about it. It was like an accomplishment and you know, it kind of just, you know, bolsters your, your engineering skill sets and you know, helps make you a better, definitely a better engineer all around. I'm, I'm a huge fan of troubleshooting being like one of your, probably your top two skill sets <laughs> any engineer should know. Um, and you know, trial by fire. Unfortunately, is the best way to learn troubleshooting because uh, you can't really pick up a book. And, and I mean, you, you can you can pick up a book and understand how things work and how to do it. But until you're kind of thrown in the mix, um, it's a whole different kind of worms.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to read about it, and another thing to actually be sitting there while everybody's waiting on you. You know, saying just repeating over and over how much money they're losing by the minute kind of thing
2: well you one of the things that is kind of funny is you know like when you, you sync up with other engineers and kind of talk shop everyone usually kind of goes to their you know horror or or champion stories mm-hmm. about some crazy troubleshooting not so much about what network networks they've ever built
0: yeah yeah that's always the the fun stories to tell mike what were you going to say
1: I was just going to say, you know, Derek brought up the point of troubleshooting with another engineer kind of shows, shows you what they're made of, what you're made of. And it's, it's a good exercise, but I I think one of the things too, especially if you're in a long troubleshooting exercise where you're under pressure, uh, just having somebody else there with you, that can kind of be again, your sanity check. and, And that second pair of eyes, oftentimes you overlook the The simple things that could be causing the problem. And while that doesn't bode well for your ego as the, uh, you know, sort of fixing that complex problem does, as Derek says, uh, it's, it is sort of a a needed thing, right? You need some, some objective person in in a lot of cases to just go, Hey, did you look at this? And you may not have, and it may have been a two second fix that you just overlooked along the way. And I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I've done that a number of times. And, Just having somebody else there that I'm working with, you know, often saves me from, uh, you know, what what could be a pretty embarrassing situation later on down the road.
2: Yeah. I'd say I've been on both sides of that, right? Where I've been, you know, when I first started out is working crazy through the night and doing things and kind of like chasing my tail. And I make a phone call finally and someone said, Oh, did you try that? And I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. And then it fixes the problem. And then I've been the other side of that where, you know, kind of in my role, I get escalated to as a last resort sometimes. And I get the call and I kind of ask, okay, what'd you guys do or what happened? And it's like, oh, it sounds like this. And then then five minutes later I hear, okay, thanks. Bye. So I know it works. So (laughs) I know know, I've done this to you a few times. Uh, You know what I, I just thought of,
0: and I've done it to you a few times, Derek, where I'll have some kind of issue that I'm troubleshooting. I can't figure it out. And just Telling somebody, explaining to somebody what right. the problem is and what you've done to fix it, a lot of times will give you like an aha moment of like, oh, you know what? I know exactly what the problem is. And Derek, I think I've called you a few times and just like rambled on the phone for about five yep. minutes and then realized what the problem was and went back and fixed it. But telling somebody, just explaining it to somebody who, you know, has the same understanding as you. Um, so that they can actually keep up with what you're talking about, or even if you don't have somebody like that, they're explaining it a lot, sometimes even in layman's terms to somebody who doesn't understand it quite as well, just walking through that whole process in your head and, and, and talking about it a lot of times will, you know, make you see the, the, the whole picture rather than just looking at, you know, the tiny little window on your screen of, of that, you know, that log output that you've been digging into for an hour kind of thing.
2: Um. Yeah, a good example of that is like, like working with TAC. I mean, you know, we work with a lot of Cisco, we work with a lot of TAC, and that's one of the things I think TAC is like phenomenal as they can come in literally blind to any network, right? And then you have to explain to them, okay, here's what the network looks like, here's a sample diagram, you know, sometimes crude, but it's functional here's the problem. And then, you know, you explaining it to a third party will often, like you said, sometimes shed the light, like, Oh yeah, maybe it's related to this section over here or not over here where we thought. And you know, that type of stuff is, is very, very helpful.
0: Mike, how about you? Do you find, uh, do you find calling tack and just explaining things a lot of times help you helps you, uh, helps you with in the troubleshooting process?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've definitely been in a situation right where I've actually typed up a description in the open You know, case form and, uh, I get halfway through typing the description and I go, Oh yeah, (laughs) I didn't check that. (laughs) So it it is definitely a good exercise. And, you know, I think we, we've hit on a ton of stuff, but the one thing I kind of wanted to mention as kind of a last thought for me is that if I didn't, and maybe I missed it, but, uh, you know, just make one change at a time because that's the, that's the other thing that's important in this whole process that I, I don't know if we brought up is that you know, the the things that you're doing are potentially creating other problems, right? So, you know, that logging and all that stuff is great, but if you don't know what you changed because you changed five things at once and you're not really sure what fixed it or what caused another problem when someone reports it to you, it's going to be very, very tough to roll that back and now you're troubleshooting two things rather than one. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of always top of mind for me is like one change at a time, right? Never more than that.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, I've I've uh, I shot myself in the foot quite a few times, you know, like making three or four changes and then, oh yeah, it's fixed. And oh, what was the problem? Well, you know, if, if this was what fixed it, then this is the problem. But if that over there is what fixed it, then maybe that's the, you know, that's a bad place to be in.
2: Uh anything else guys? I would say uh closing thoughts for our website is down friends is when in doubt reboot it three times.
0: Yes, absolutely. Look in the show notes, go watch the website is down if you haven't seen it and if you've been in the uh in the service desk industry, you will definitely appreciate it. <laughs> Mike, have you seen the website is down?
1: I have. Um, it's it's very funny. It sort of makes me <laughs> feel uncomfortable, but uh but I like it. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, guys. Uh, let's go around the table. And um, Derek, what uh, what do you have going on this week, and how can people find you on the internet?
2: Sure. So uh, kind of getting back up on blogging again. So uh, over at Packet Pushers, over on Twitter at dpocaroba, and then at Packet Pushers at the same same account. Uh, coming up soon, later this month, I'm actually teaching a the Cisco kind of SD-WAN class for our local user group in san diego um so that'll be kind of fun and then um yeah just uh staying busy cool
0: yeah i saw your uh i saw your your blog post on troubleshooting i'll uh uh, i'll put a link in the show notes to that but uh i think that's uh (laughs) i think that you uh you mentioned that as a topic and then ended up writing up a whole uh you know yeah i had a good
2: uh i had a good six hour flight cut a delay and it had some time oh, yeah. to kill and was just riding on the plane. And next thing I know, I had like a thousand words. I'm like, well, this should be good. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, how about
0: you? Uh, what are you doing this week and how can people find you on the internet?
1: Yeah. So uh, not a whole lot exciting going on this week other than uh, just personally moving. So that's going to consume most of my week, but I uh, get to dust off some old skills and do some contact center express scripting. Um, and uh definitely looking forward to uh hearing from Derek at the end of the week this week about uh, some things he learned at the uh Enterprise Network partner VT from Cisco as well.
0: Awesome. And uh so this week I will be doing some uh some design around an office refresh for one of uh one of my uh legal field customers. But uh If you want to find me on the internet, you can find a lot of my my recent blogs at Packet Pushers, some of my older ones at Packetsar.com, and uh, you can find me on the Twitter at Packetsar. And uh, thanks for your time, guys. Have a good week. See you next time. See ya.
2: You guys watch the Luton Valley? Yeah, dude. Dude, the new season is hilarious. So spot on. Like, the I was laughing my ass off just thinking like, it, it it's becoming like so spot on to our industry. Like I I just love that show now. It's like my favorite show. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Cool. All right, guys. Talk to you. All, All right. Home.